This is Brian Paris with Sounds of Berkeley. Today I'm talking with Josh Rogeson, the technical director for NPR Music's wildly popular video series, Tiny Desk Concerts. With close to 400 Tiny Desk shows under his belt, Rogeson has seen no small amount of audio engineering challenges. He's mic'd everything from a harpsichord to MIDI-controlled player pianos to a Broadway cast, all within the constraints of a small office space. And it's his fine-tuning that has helped establish Tiny Desk as a rite of passage for bands and an intimate listening experience for viewers. Well, Josh Rogeson, uh, welcome to Sounds of Berkeley. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here. It's nice to meet you, Brian. Thanks. So, so Josh, uh, you're here for an event um, called Tiny Desk Talks. Well, you're, you're going to be kind of going under the hood a little bit of the Tiny Desk concert series from a sort of audio engineering perspective. And for those who are fans of the show, I, I, I imagine that sort of that, that graphic element that you see at the beginning of the video of that, of that room mic, you're the guy that, that manipulates that, that, that moves it around. So it's cool to get a little behind that. So maybe you could talk a little bit first about kind of what the Tiny Desk Talk is um, and why you're here and a little bit about that. And uh, then we can hear a little bit more about your own story. Yeah, so the events team at NPR uh, decided that it would be cool to have four different talks around the country, the first one being here in Boston, which I'm ecstatic to be here. I actually grew up the second half of my childhood kind of up the street in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, so Boston was always the big city for me. So it's great to be back. Um, and uh, basically, uh, they wanted me to come and talk about what I do from a technical standpoint because it kind of seems like, oh, there's just one mic, but actually there's a lot more that that's happening behind the scenes than just that one stereo shotgun mic, that MS stereo shotgun mic that makes everything sound larger than life. Um, so how did, how did you get here? What is, the, what is a little bit about your journey, kind of um, just coming to music uh, and, and working in audio in that, in that regards and kind of how you ended up in this like very unique but very cool uh, program? I grew up in a very musical family. My dad was a conductor for Johnny Mathis, among uh, other notables like Michelle Legrand and Paris. And my mom was an original Musketeer in the 1950s. So uh, actually, you know, this sort of artistic thing was in my bones from a very young age. And I used to write songs, you know, in junior high on acoustic guitar. And um, from that, you know, my my parents decided it would be fun to get me some studio time in a local recording studio called Fish Tracks in Portsmouth. And um, I just fell in love with the recording process, recording like my four, you know, demo songs with just me and acoustic guitar. And um, from there, I got my very first, you know, four-track tape machine uh, made by Tascam, the 424, the famed 424, which a lot of great music has been made on in people's basements, I'm sure. Um, and I just, when I decided to go to college, which is, uh, Ithaca College, at uh, the Park School of Communications, upstate New York, I decided rather than study theater, which is something that I had done, basically my parents ran a theater in Portsmouth, New Hampshire called the Seacoast Repertory Theater. Oh, cool. It's actually yeah, still no, there. I'm familiar with it, yeah. Yep. And they actually founded that. We moved from Los Angeles, California, um, and they decided to start a theater company and I grew up performing my whole life. Uh, doing rock and roll musicals like Rocky Horror Show and Who's Tommy and um, Jesus Christ Superstar and things like that. But when I was going to college, I decided I really wanted to delve into audio production rather than study uh, theater, which is kind of what I'd done as a hobby growing up. That's cool. And so that's kind of what brought you into the production world. And then you somehow make it down to D.C. And, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. So my first gig in Washington, D.C. was working at the Shakespeare Theater. Um, oh, cool. So a theater connection there, yep, too. Yeah. Yep. I, I 
I still wanted to kind of keep a toe in, in the theater world, but was very interested in audio production. So I found an assistant audio engineer position at the Shakespeare Theater, mostly playing back music and sound effects for all these like pretty elaborate Shakespeare productions. Um, and once in a while, you know, adding a reverb effect to a ghost or something like this. And I used to walk by NPR's headquarters on my way to the Shakespeare Theater. And that's literally the reason why I work there to this day is basically looking up at the building as I'm walking by, you know, pounding the pavement, so to speak. So that's, it's literally just kind of just emerged in your landscape and then... True. It was completely by accident. I don't have the foresight yeah. <laughs> to actually come up with a great idea like that. Uh, and it just, it was an incredible transition. I was deciding whether or not to leave theater or to go into broadcasting. And once I saw, you know, there were postings for all these different remote opportunities. Hey, go to West Africa and record voodoo festivals and rituals uh, with Radio Expeditions, which was a wonderful series that no longer exists. It aired on Morning Edition. So I did a three-part series on voodoo rituals in West Africa. I went to Greece and we did a story about ancient athletics leading up to the 2004 Summer Olympics, which took place in Athens. And it was just an incredible world that I never thought existed. And that I literally fell into by accident. Wow, that's cool. And I mean, you and I were talking a little bit before uh, before this about how Tiny Desk came about and how about NPR music came about. And it seems like it's almost similar in that it kind of fell into place, just sort of like the right place, right time. Which yeah. is similar to how you arrived there too, which is interesting. I don't know if you wanted to talk about just kind of how you got involved with Tiny Desk and, and, and that sort of thing. NPR music which came out of all thing, all songs considered, they used to go to South by Southwest. Actually, we still do every year. And back in the early days, um, somewhere around 2007, I'd say, uh, Stephen Thompson, who is um, an NPR personality, he hosts uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour, and he's also an editor at NPR Music. He and Bob were at a show in Austin. Uh, I don't know if anyone's been to South by Southwest, but it is a zoo, and there's a lot of noise coming from every orifice, so to speak. Uh, so they went to see a show at a bar, and, you know, I think there was a football game playing. I actually, this I know this story secondhand, so you have to forgive me if I don't know all of the details. But yeah, we won't quiz you, so it's all right. Exactly. So um, Stephen Thompson and, and Bob Boylan were watching um, this wonderful singer-songwriter called Laura Gibson, and they basically couldn't hear a thing she was singing because it was a very loud, boisterous bar in the middle of South by Southwest. But they knew the music was beautiful. So they went and chatted with her after the show. And um, the story goes uh, that, you know, uh, Stephen jokingly said, you know, the next time you're in D.C., you should really just come and play at Bob's desk because we couldn't hear a thing you were singing about. And she said, okay, next time I'm in, I'm in D.C., I'll let you know. And sure enough, a few months later, she, you know, calls their bluff, says, I'm in D.C., I'm coming to your office to play my concert. And that was the beginning of the Tiny Desk Concert Series. Wow, that's super cool. Um, I love kind of like that, you know, like the idea of a Tiny Desk concert is is as humble of beginning as it sounds too, you know, but it's it's blossomed into this this massive thing. It was definitely born out of necessity, I'd like to say. Yeah, yeah, which I oh, so many of the best things are. Um, so I wonder if you could share a little bit about some of your experiences uh, working this, this unique uh, 
you know, this unique concert series and just sort of what goes into that, what's some of the weirder instruments you've had to mic before or arrange for. And I, I understand the process is pretty quick and dirty. People come in and bands are often in between tour stops and, and you got to capture this thing quick and, and stuff. So I'd love to hear anything that, you know, came across you. They were like, how are we going to make this happen? How are we going to turn this into an experience? And then how that actually came about and, and became some of the, the more endearing things that we've seen. Yeah, it's really a varied production style. Every band has their own style and ways of doing things. A band like Tyler, the creator, when he came in, that was planned in advance because we had, you know, a humongous lighting rig and their lighting person came in the night before. We decided to do it at night. There's all those lush colors. There's a lot of backline I had to order from our, our local backline company in DC. And, um, so that one was like calculated and well planned, although very loose in the moment and and very unpredictable as well. So it was like a really interesting. That was really Tyler's personality coming out, and it felt very sort of like spontaneous, even though there was a lot of preparation that went into it. And then other bands, you know, they don't really know what to expect. They come in wanting to have in ear monitors or wedges or a PA system, and I think that's all stuff that we strip away which actually sets us apart from everything else. No one's wearing headphones. All these in-studio sessions that you see um, very di- very differently from the Tiny Desk series. It's really like, you know, a group of musicians hanging around in their hotel room or around a campfire. Uh, you know, the way music used to be heard before all of this technology came about, and that's what I try to keep in the back of my mind is to, to make it as raw and as organic as just people coming together to play music in a room. Also, I just wanted to bring up, you know, some people wonder why we use, you know, shotgun mics. That is not (laughs) any mic that you ever see. And it really comes from the history of doing field recording at NPR. Most of our reporters use shotgun mics in the field with portable recorders. So the shotgun mic kind of comes from the DNA of NPR. Also, it gives us an opportunity to get that nice, intimate, up-close sound without having the mics in the shot, really. Like, you get that tight shot of a musician emoting uh, their music and there's something really special about seeing them in a very natural way and the shotgun helps us accomplish that so there's a number of tiny desks that are just extremely diverse I just wanted to illustrate some here yeah I know I'd love to hear that yeah you basically have folks like Yo-Yo Ma comes in with this cello from 1712 and like you know it's just how simple can it get, right? It's just a guy in his cello, but you really still want to make it sound natural yet larger than life. And I think that's something that worked out pretty well. Um, basically, there's the stereo shotgun mic, which was mostly just used to pick up his speaking voice in between the songs he played, as well as um, to help supplement the mono mic. And I'm using a Sennheiser MKH-40 And basically, I think it's important to just put your head where it sounds good. So, you know, when he shows up with this gorgeous cello that's pretty much priceless, uh, I'm there with my head right next to it, figuring out where I want to put that mic. Um, Now, I just had a mono signal with that MKH-40, so I wanted that to sound more natural than just like a mono source. I find that just recording a mono source can sound 
unnatural. It's just not how we hear. We, we all have two ears. We hear everything in stereo. So just hearing something in mono actually isn't very natural. So I'll, I'll use software like Isotope and things like this to use a stereo like effect, basically, or a spreader on that mono mic to make it sound like it's your ears in stereo right next to that cello. So something that's so simple as, oh, a guy in his cello, how easy can this be? Set up the stereo shotgun mic and you're done. Uh, I like to take it up a, up a notch um, and really make it feel like you're right next to this guy. So that was one simple example. Um, and you've got another band that comes in, Super Organism from London. Uh, I believe they're from London. They basically had all these unconventional instruments. There's a girl playing a water bucket, and they had a ruler that they flicked, and a toy cash register, and um, a, a cup of water that they bubbled through, plus a Moog. Um, and an electric guitar through a little amp. And um, I had seen a lot of videos. That's part of what I do when it's unconventional and I don't know how to record a band. I'll watch a bunch of videos that are online. And I had heard this particular setup sounding like pretty thin. They wanted, they wanted it really lo-fi. They had these teeny little amps and they just sort of like mic'd the general room. But in addition to taking the amps, I also took that Moog direct. I also took the sampling pad direct so I could have all those samples in stereo. And I'm so glad that I did because it it just flushes it out and makes it sound larger than life. And also recorded all that Foley effect. Chilling at the bottom of the sea and I say I'm happy just being a Oh I'm happy just being a Another humongous band was the Tedeschi Trucks band. They had two drummers. So my task was like, how do you record two drummers? I've got, you know, a max of 16 channels. I cut it off at that as part of sort of the spirit of Tiny Desk. I don't want to do any more than that. And two background vocalists, three horn players, keyboard player, two electric guitarists, two drummers. How do you make things pop out? So at the end of the video... Derek Trucks takes this monster solo that's just incredible. And I really wanted it to be on top of everything else. And it already sounds, how could this possibly get any bigger? And then his solo comes in and I just love that moment because it just soars over top of everything else. And that's a super challenging thing to do when you have musicians that are no more than 10 feet from each other. That's wild, yeah. And little little plug, Susan Tedeschi's an alumna of Berkeley. So, oh, yeah. So yeah, we've had a we've had a few, but yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, and it kind of just brings this larger question that we can kind of go out on is sort of what you think the 
the enduring appeal of this show is. I mean, why it's so wildly popular. Both It seems like the bands come away with it th- feeling like they've had a really unique experience, which is probably, especially, they're usually promoting a new record and they're on this grueling schedule and they get to do something a little bit different so it stands out. Um, but for the people in the office and for the people watching on the screen, I'm, I'm, I, I keep going back to your comment about music around a campfire and I'm like, okay, so a computer is not necessarily a fire, but... Gathering around a kind of bright light and sort of seeing it, I wonder if this is there's an, an analogy there, you know, something that's sort of um, like that. Um, so, but also speaking specifically from an engineering perspective, I wonder if that's part of it too, which is like there needs to be some kind of translation. It's like it's not just going to be how it sounds in the office is going to translate, um, you know, in the video to everyone around the world. Yeah, how it sounds in the office is not how it sounds online. I'm sorry, it's just not. Uh, Secrets revealed. Sound, yeah, how it sounds in the office is fantastic. I mean, it is that around the campfire feel. And also, with recordings, I feel like you need to do the work of the microphone because your ears are incredible. And if you're in the room and you're hearing all of these instruments being played acoustically or through amps or whatever at low volumes, you can pick out the part that you want to hear because you're there. And they're coming from a specific location. When I have to translate that with microphones and software, I feel like I need to enhance it in a way that mimics the way the miracle <laughs> of hearing and being there in person is. And it's different. It's just different. Um, I think part of the success of the series, again, is that around the campfire feel, there's no PA. You're not hearing any, you're hearing voices coming from people who are standing in front of you and that's it and how how rare is that that's pretty rare unless you're just like a music student at berkeley right <laughs> right yep <laughs> well yep. normal here. people <laughs> normal people don't get to be in that incredible space uh the other element that makes it so magical is the audience right i mean you see live sessions i love the kexp sessions they always sound yeah. incredible they're amazing um, I just hope they never bring an audience into their studio because then that'll that'll create some of the magic that we capture all the time. Right, right. <laughs> it's that playing into a void is awesome, and it's that's why you listen to the records. But there's something about the relationship between the artists and the audience sharing a communal experience. It's why I go to live theater. It's why I got into all of this to begin with, and why I followed my parents' put footsteps by just like being in love with live performance and having a communal experience. Why do we go to the movie theater? You know, it's because we're sharing an experience in a room together with each other and there's nothing like it. Yeah, I love that. And actually just it kind of occurs to me that it is there this is a theatrical performance. I mean, yeah, it's like the tiny desk is kind of like a black box. I mean, and you're bringing a lot of those skills that are so uniquely suited to that. Uh, to think of just like the whole piece. It's not just the audio, it's not just performance, it's something bigger than all of that. That's which, so true. It is completely indescribable. And I hope you can come and see one in person. It's now that you know an employee at NPR. Yeah, well, we've recorded it. So I have I have that now. <laughs> <laughs> I will keep that in mind for sure because that's a dream right there. Well, Josh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks again. Thanks for inviting me, Brian. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. This episode was engineered by Tony Brown in partnership with The Burn. I'm Brian Paris, and this is Sounds of Berkeley. For more podcasts that explore the Berkeley community, check out berkeley.edu slash sounds dash berkeley dash podcasts.